The scripture this morning is from Psalm 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I'm worn out from my groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They would turn back and suddenly be put to shame. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. First and foremost, I want to begin today by saying thank you. Thank you to all who have reached out, who have sent cards and emails and texts. I'm truly grateful for the encouragement as uh, we sent an email out because I preached about the decline of my mom's health two Sundays ago on July 4th. She passed into the arms of Jesus. My family time in California was bitter, was sweet, was sorrowful, was joyful. Um, Yet it's all still fresh, and so obviously I I don't want to tear up the entire sermon, and so that's all I'm going to say about it at this point. But here's what's significant to me about what's happened in my life and probably what's happened in your life. The Psalms understand. God understands. I find deep comfort in a Psalm like this and so many others where where David and the the other authors are pouring out their despair, pouring out their anguish, pouring out their agony. And I encourage all of us, whether it's the loss of a loved one or the, the loss of a relationship, or we all have something in our lives that probably has created that moment of anguish, that moment of sorrow, that moment of sadness. The psalm marks the truth that you are not alone. You are not alone in that despair. What we see in the psalm and what my main point is going to be today is that in the depths of agony, we find the deeper still assurance of God's abounding, adamant affection. Nice alliteration, right? So in the first service, I said, I, couldn't, I, I, was, I spent too much time looking for an A word for depth, and then I just gave up, and, and then somebody after the first service said, abyss, use the word abyss. So in the abyss of agony, we find the, I don't know, abyss, is, the deeper still assurance of God's abounding, adamant affection. That's what we see in the psalm today, and that's what we see time and time again in the psalms. And may we find comfort in that today. Let's pray again as we go to his word. Heavenly Father, may you do the work that you need to do in us. We come seeking your wisdom. We come seeking your understanding. I pray your word today would do what it promises to do. May it reveal our hearts. May it correct, convict, train, rebuke. Do what you need to do so that we may look more like you, Christ. 
Lord, I admit the areas that I still claim control. I admit how easily I want to apply sermons and your word to other people and reticence to apply to my own heart and my own life. Lord, I confess to how I'm excited to sing songs like praising my Savior all the day long. And yet then Monday comes. Or Sunday afternoon. And we forget our story. We define our story by something else, someone else. Lord, we confess those to you. And may you do your work. I pray, Lord, that we would be quick to listen and slow to speak. Lord, I know some today are dealing with the sorrow of loss or the loss of work or a loved one or uh, the things that they thought were stable and safe. May your presence be known and felt. I pray for the Justice family that your presence would be known and felt today. May you provide your steadfast love. And like Psalm 3, may we lie down and sleep in peace. Because as your word says, perfect love casts out fear. Thank you, Father, that by Jesus' perfect love and life, we can come to you. It's by his name we pray. Amen. One thing I'd imagine that you've picked up when you read the Psalms or you're picking up in this series is there's a good bit of repetition from Psalm to Psalm. There's a good bit of covering some of the same things. Kevin's points last week, make, a, make space, make a case, stand in grace. David's doing the same thing here. He's making space, he's making a case, and he's standing in grace. A few weeks ago when I preached and I talked about the, 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 uh, the enemies that are out here, and what does he do? He makes a grammatical 180 and focuses himself on who his God is. In this psalm, the, the enemies are in here. It's in here. And what does he do? He takes and makes a grammatical 180. There's a lot of repetition in the Psalms, but that's probably a good thing for us because we're a forgetful people. We lose sight of who our God is. We lose sight of his character. I think we need the repetition of the Psalms because it teaches us also that we haven't arrived. We're not there yet. We're not perfect yet. We're not where we want to be. Whatever it is for you, the Psalms reinforce in us the importance of prayer, the importance of dependence upon God. Psalm 6, like the others, also gives words to those who scarcely have the heart or scarcely have the words to pray. It gives words to when we don't know what to pray. See, one of the lessons that I see and learn in the Psalms as I read them is it's not about the perfect prayer, it's about the honest prayer. It's about the vulnerable prayer, the transparent prayer. Because the key we see in this Psalm and all the other Psalms is that the psalmist is communicating He's, he's praying. He's communicating. In times of victory, he calls upon God. In times of defeat, he calls upon God. In times of struggle or temptation, he calls upon God. In times of darkness, he calls upon God. What's the repetitive thing there? He calls upon God. Kevin referenced last week uh, an author, Brant Hansen. He wrote another book called Blessed are the Misfits. And in a chapter on prayer, he says not communicating is really the problem. 
Yes, some of our prayers are clumsy or meandering or even immature and selfish, but I get the impression from Scripture that God would rather be in communication with an immature, selfish person than be ignored by a theologically fastidious one. Fastidious means paying attention to careful detail, often difficult to please, excessively sensitive and excessively scrupulous. The Psalms show us call upon God. No matter what, you can call upon God. There's a song that I found myself listening to called Talking to Jesus. And, and it's one of those songs that, yeah, sure, you can, you can delve into the fastidiousness. I'm not sure if that's a word. Uh, I just made it a word of, of, of some of the lyrics. But the, the aim is the heart of the Psalms. It doesn't have to be pretty. There's no bad time to start. Just tell him what's on your heart. Another author I love to read, Francis Fenelon, puts it this way, tell God all that is in your heart. As one unloads one's heart, its pleasures, its pain to a dear friend, tell him your troubles, that he may comfort you. Tell him your joys, that he may sober them. Tell him the wounds of your heart, that he may heal them. Blessed are they who attain to such familiar, unreserved conversation with God. That's the picture that we see in this psalm and in all the psalms. And I feel like it's good to just reinforce that because it's reinforced time and time again when we read the psalms. And Psalm 6 drives again home to this point. Call upon God. Call upon Him. Now, as far as the context goes of Psalm 6, some commentators are split whether David is confessing sin on one part or, or he is suffering and, and talking about the anguish that he feels from the overwhelmed suffering, both internal anxiety, depression, and external, or that he's feeling the anguish because of, of some sin in his life. Either way, Psalm 6 is one of those lament psalms, a psalm of agony, a psalm of anguish. It, the early church would sing it often on Ash Wednesday, leading into Lent before Easter. Some will argue that from verse 1, you see that it's about repentance and sin. But then unlike Psalm 51, he doesn't actually re repent of sin. He doesn't actually confess any sin. But the point still remains. There is anguish in his bones. He feels despair. He feels agony. He feels depression. And I think some of it is really from suffering, like Job. Not because of sin, but Job felt agony in the hardships that he faced in his life. They were to refine him, though. They were to purify him, to prune him, to bring about growth. And that's the first thing to understand about agony and despair and these things in your life. God uses them to prune us. One quote I really love says, if you're irritated by every rub, how will you get polished? How? No matter the reason, David is clearly experiencing deep anguish. You see it in some of the poetic languages, language he uses. Drenched my couch with tears. His couch probably wasn't covered in water. But he can't sleep. He feels despair. He feels exhaustion. He feels sorrow. He feels as though God's presence has been withdrawn from him. 
I find comfort in that. I find comfort in knowing that I'm not alone when I feel the same thing. If you've ever felt like God's presence is absent, is gone, is withdrawn, you're actually in good company. Many followers of Christ over the centuries have written about it. Mother Teresa journaled about the silence that she felt from heaven. And my first prayer for us and hope for us is that we would be a community that would be a transparent place where we could share that. I don't, I feel silence. I feel like he's withdrawn. That it would be safe to share and to have vulnerability for those who are experiencing such things to know that we're here and we love you. To be encouraged, yes. To be pointed to Christ, yes. But to see and hear from others that you're not alone. So again, whether the agony is caused because of the consequences of sin or is caused by what's going on around him, the key I think we see, and the key for us, is that he doesn't run from it. He doesn't hide from it. He doesn't distract himself from it. Do we? When we have that moment of discomfort in our lives, that moment where there's a little bit of silence, maybe it's laying asleep at night when all has gone to bed and there's that silence, what's the first thing I do? Distract myself. Again, whether the anguish is coming from the consequences of sin and you know it and you feel it, or of the world that's unfolding around you, David doesn't run from it. He doesn't distract himself from it. He runs to God. And I say don't hide from it, don't run from it, don't dis, uh, distract yourself from it because without acknowledging the agony, without acknowledging the anguish, you can't see how breathtaking the assurance that you do have in the abounding, adamant affection of our God. When we distract ourselves from that moment, it's so easy to not realize how amazing his grace really is. We also do it the other way. Some of our students have just gotten back from Rush. They were at, our high school students were at summer camp in Atlanta at, at the church perimeter uh, for their summer camp. And then our middle school students have, uh, in June, went to TVR. And I heard, I've heard stories of how amazing this year was. And they echo stories that I hear every year when kids come back from, from camp and from trips. In those undistracted moments, God shows up. And they talk about how, man, God showed up this week in my life. What happens? You come back. You get distracted again. Whether it's distraction from the discomfort or distraction from boredom, the power of those moments wear off. And like the psalmist, the answer is call upon God. Call upon him. Run to the Father. You see, the assurance that we have in our life, in our moments, comes not just simply from confidence, not simply from just assurance and for assurance sake. 
It's anchored in, it's stuck to, it's rooted in, dependent upon God's abounding, adamant affection. That's where our assurance comes. That's why the assurance is deeper than the depths of agony, because of who he is. Let me define those words for you. Abounding, overflowing, plentiful, a great quantity, adamant, unshakable, unyielding, unchanging, affection, tenderness, loving kindness, disposition of love, steadfast love. At the core of all of our security of who we are is God's unyielding, unshakable, unfailing, loyal love. That's what he says in verse 4. Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because I'm a good person. Save me because I come to church every Sunday. Save me because I read your Bible. Save me because of your unfailing love. The Hebrew word there is hesed. It shows up over 200 times in the Old Testament, and it's, it's the, the best definition is the devoted love that pledges never to let go of us. It echoes the call to worship that Doug had at the front of the service. Has said, he loves you that much. It's not dependent upon you. And in the moments of agony, that's where you see the deeper still assurance because it's not based upon you. It's based upon his covenant, his promise, his character. This is the rock that David throws himself on. This is the, 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 the rock that he, he says, this is what sustains me. Not my will, not my strength, not my ability, not my gifts, not my talents. This word is throughout the Psalms. It gets translated as steadfast love or unfailing love or kindness or loving kindness or tender affection. But deep within that word is loyalty based upon who God is. His devoted love that pledges to never let us go. The story in the book of Hosea, it's one of the minor prophets, There's a story of the minor prophet in Hosea that God calls him. It's about this love. It's about God's unbreakable, anchored, tender affection compared to our fickle, fleeting, easily distracted love. Hosea was called to marry a prostitute who kept cheating on him. And to illustrate God's hesed, to illustrate his unfailing love, Hosea continues to run after, chase down, and love her despite her fickle, fleeting, easily distracted love. So perhaps you're familiar with the United States Postal Service's motto, neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers. I I, I learned that it's not their actual motto. They they don't actually have an official motto because I've, I've sure seen snow days where they have not delivered mail. They don't actually have a motto, and the more you know, there, you're welcome. It's not the United States Postal Service motto. It actually shows up 440 BC. Herodotus is writing about the Greek and the Persian War. 
And he, he's writing about the Greeks and the Persians and how the Persian couriers, those that their job was to get messages from the king and from command central out to the armies and out to the places to, to go wherever, he was amazed because this was true of them. That neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stayed these couriers. He was impressed by their speed and by their unwavering devotion to their work. You realize the assurance that we have is that neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays his abounding, adamant affection for you. And I can say that with absolute certainty today because of Christ. When you trust in Jesus, when you say, I need you, Jesus, like we said in the vows, you have absolute certainty that none of these things will stay his love for you. The events of Jesus, his life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, our Psalm 6 lived out. As deep as we feel anguish, as deep as we feel sadness and depression and despair, he knows it. And he walked in it to the cross. And he took the wrath he took the discipline. And in that, he offers said unwavering forgiveness, unwavering love. His resurrection solidifies and secures and seals his promise that he will never cast you out. And verse 10 becomes a true promise. All my enemies the one true enemy who wants to see you destroyed will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. He will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. That's what Christ did on the cross. So the question is, David looks to God's said to find assurance. How much more now in Christ do we have assurance? Jesus tells us, if you've seen the Son... If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And in Jesus, we see compassion. Over and over again, he looks at the crowds. He's moved with compassion. The abounding, adamant affection of God is not and, and cannot be as captivating, as breathtaking, as freeing, as guilt-removing, as shame-destroying unless you see just how bad the picture is. When we are willing to see and own our anguish, our sin, our being overwhelmed, our true dependence, then the darkness of David's night makes the sunrise all the more beautiful. All the more beautiful. And so in the depths of agony, there is a deeper still assurance because of God's abounding, adamant affection. In closing, I'm reminded of a story of the two sons found in Luke 15. You know this story possibly, right? That's the story Jesus tells, a parable he tells of a father and two sons, and the younger one wants to go off and live life, wants his money, and goes off and lives life however he wants. 
And the story takes him to a place where he's in the pig pen. He's in the pigsty. He's with the pigs, feeding them, and he's hungry. He wants to eat their food. And what amazes me is the, young, the younger son, he comes home with mixed motives. It's his hunger that gets him up to start walking. Yes, he does confess to the father his sin, but even with mixed motives, what does the father do? He runs to him. He doesn't let him finish his speech. How can we not sing of the goodness of God? How can we not sing of his faithfulness? And in the depths of agony, find a deeper still assurance of God's abounding adamant affection. My, my prayer this week has been, Lord, help me be captivated by that. My prayer for you is that you would be captivated by that. That when we leave this place, when we finish singing, when, when, when we go to lunch and, and return to work on Monday, that you don't lose sight of the breathtaking love that God has, of who he is. And finally, that it would pour out of you to those around you, to your spouses, to your children, to your parents, to those you work with. Because we see that same word then led to call us to be different. Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love said, and to walk humbly with your God? Zechariah 7, 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render to true judgments, show said and mercy to one another. Just as when, when, when we find the beauty of something, when we're passionate about something, it spills out to those around us. How many of you can talk for a long time about the things that you love, the things that you're passionate about? May we be captivated by the beauty of our God's affection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you. Thank you that you would lavish upon us that which we don't deserve, that we haven't earned, and yet you would give it. You would give your love, and you would give your son as a physical representation of your love. That in Jesus, we see the picture of the Father's love. Your love was so great, Jesus, that you would go to the cross and bear our punishment. And even on the cross, you would, Father, forgive them. May that captivate us. Lord, I pray for any that are dealing with loss, any that are dealing with hurt or despair or depression, that this would be a moment where they're captivated by you, your beauty. Lord, if there are sins in our lives that we need to confess, that there's agony and sleepless nights because of, may we just give them to you because of your abounding affection. And Lord, as we sing, may we sing of your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.